Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, I speak with Martin Burtz, founder and CEO of Fundacion Paraguaya, an NGO devoted to developing solutions to eliminate poverty. Martine is also a writer of the book, Who Owns Poverty, that was published last year. In this book, Martine challenges top-down and expert thinking about poverty and how to resolve it, and he describes the development of the Poverty Stoplight tool and program. In this episode, he tells us more about the Poverty Stoplight, why it's different from what has been done before, and how it helps people move out of poverty. Thank you very much, Martine, for joining the podcast and taking the time to, um, to talk with me today. I've read your book with a lot of interest. I think it's, it's a very fascinating read to learn more about your personal journey in developing the Poverty Stoplight. And so my first question, uh, maybe for the audience who don't know about the Poverty Stoplight, is, is if you can explain a little bit what the tool is and what the program is about. Yes, uh, thank you very much. I'm very happy to be in, in this uh, podcast. Every person in any country in the world knows what it means to be not poor in their situation. It could be an indigenous tribesman in the Amazon forest, or it could be a person in southern India, or it could be a farmer in the United States. It doesn't matter. So the poverty stoplight is uh, a new poverty metric and a coaching methodology that assumes that poverty is multidimensional and that what's important is not only what are the different aspects of poverty or the different dimensions, income, employment, health, housing, but who measures? Because what we have seen is that agency and self-efficacy are as important as uh, resources uh, and opportunities. We have a a more uh, integral view of who we are and what are our options or what are our aspirations. It is very important to allow the poor, meaning you and I, to measure ourselves. And I mention this is because uh, what we're trying to do with the poverty stoplight is move beyond low income, a definition of poverty. You can have a middle-class poor person in teeth or in addictions or in lack of uh, self-esteem or in family violence uh, that prevent that person to reach their potential. So the Poverty Stoplight is a poverty measurement tool and coaching methodology that allows people to self-diagnose themselves and create not an aggregated index, which most poverty measurements are uh, by decision makers at the top, but decision makers at the bottom benefit from a dashboard and to complement the national development plans with a family household uh, development plan. So if I understand correctly, the poverty stoplight has 50 indicators in them? 50 indicators and that we reached by interviewing thousands and thousands of people and we have validated them And uh, there are, uh, not surprisingly, many objective indicators, and there are also subjective indicators. Uh, Both are important. It's very difficult to measure subjective indicators. That's why it is key to allow there to be self-assessment. That while it is not 100% perfect, it is much better 
than not having them or uh, having a second person or a third person try to gauge and understand what is this farmer's self-esteem or his motivation to move out of poverty. Mm. And so case managers or caseworkers would sit with people and go through the 50 indicators and they would categorize themselves along the line of, is it three categories that they can belong to? Well, we have our six categories or dimensions, income and employment, health and environment, housing and infrastructure, education and culture, organization and participation and interiority and motivation. And within each of these uh, dimensions or categories, we have a total of 50 indicators and they are written in first person singular or first person plural. For example, I feel safe in my house, green, yellow, or red, or we eat nutritious food, green, yellow, or red. The indicator in the case of family savings is we save as a family. Uh, it is not there is a bank in the neighborhood because what we want is regardless of whether there is a bank or in the case of food, a supermarket, do we eat well? You can have a farmer's market across the street from you and you can still be eating frozen pizza every day. So the idea is to empower people. And this has a lot to do with something called conscientization, awareness raising of who I am, what, what are my aspirations and how am I doing? It is an important point of uh, self-reflection. And so then the program is about helping people themselves improve in the chosen dimensions or indicators with the help of case managers? Yes, case managers, family extensionists, social workers. In the case of businesses, it, it is somebody at the a human resource department. But yes, it is helping the, the, the person reflect, these are my strengths. We always start with strengths. These are my greens and these are my, my yellows and these are my reds and where do I want to start and uh, what is my plan of action? And then connect them with government services in the cases where there are government services or also uh, connect them with attitudes of self-improvement. You know, what am I going to do if I'm not happy with my uh, weight? What can I do? Can I have a better diet? Can I do more exercise? This or that. So depending on the indicator, there are different solutions uh, that are ready, readily available because by definition, the indicators are all actionable in the place where the respondent lives. So there, is, uh, there aren't any indicators that are unachievable by definition. And that's because they were identified by people living in poverty as being actionable or that's because there are the resources in their immediate environment either within themselves or within their families so that they can improve their situation and also because uh, we have identified what we call positive deviance people who should not in that in those uh, low income or poverty situation should not have been able to have a proper toilet but they do or they should not be having a complete set of teeth, but they do. Or they should not have been able, typically, to send all their children to school, but they did. So what, did, what do positive deviants, quote-unquote, do? What they show is that it is not impossible. Of course, every indicator is different, and every person is different. Even within the household, of course, if the, 
mother of the house answers the stoplight, she probably will have a slightly different response than if her husband responds. We are aware of that. But in general, what we try to do is to empower the family household to identify their strengths and to identify their problems and to do something about it. Your book speaks to this really clearly and powerfully in the sense that by placing the assessment of poverty with people themselves and also the identification of solution, there is a sense of agency there and giving them the power to improve their situation. At the same time, I was also wondering whether this view of placing all the responsibility with people in poverty can can fuel this sort of thinking that if they don't improve their situation, if they're not able to move out of poverty, they are somehow to blame for this. So the sort of flip side of the coin in, in that sense. Yes, that is a common misinterpretation of the stoplight. It is not blaming them. It is empowering them. And so, of course, there are structural issues that uh, make it very difficult to overcome poverty. But given the structural problems that we are also uh, trying to address, it is much better to have an empowered person who has the naming power and who says, uh, this is my observation of where I am. That does not place the blame on them. For example, how am I doing with teeth? How am I doing with housing? How am I doing with education? It is very important for the person to be able to establish where they are. There was a famous educator in Brazil called Paulo Freire, and he wrote a very famous book in the 1960s called The Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And he was saying that when he was uh, talking to social activists that wanted to mobilize sugarcane cutters in Brazil who were actually living in situations of semi-slavery, what he was saying is social activism to liberate, quote unquote, the poor are insufficient if the sugarcane cutters themselves are not aware that they are living in in slavery. So what we need to have is an empowerment. Uh, This is not blaming anybody. And depending on the indicator, there are people who eat poorly. And if nutritious food is an indicator of poverty, there are people who eat nutritious food and there are people who do not eat nutritious food. Sometimes it is because cheap calories are more readily available and sometimes it has to do with other reasons. So it depends on the indicator, but I think that the other extreme of not giving the poor any participation in the definition of their poverty is, is another big problem. And when you have only an effort to define poverty as being strictly structural and it's a human right, then many governments appropriate and take ownership of uh, people's problems in order to save them or support them, but in the process may be weakening the poor by not giving them power of defining an agency. I cannot imagine telling a mother, you're not responsible for anything. We will take care of you because you were born under unfavorable situations. So it's a combination of both. At least that is our experience. Mm. I also wanted to ask you about structural support in terms of cash transfers. And I found your perspective on this quite interesting in the sense that I think somewhere you say um, that 
cash transfers can always be seen as a way of paying people to stay in poverty. And very explicitly, you state in the book as well that the program doesn't provide any cash or material support. What is your, your view of conditional cash transfers that have been implemented around the region or the cash plus or the graduation programs that provide the material supports with a sort of rationale saying, well, we, we need to give people a springboard, if you will. Yeah. With regards to the conditional cash transfers, we have to be very careful in not disempowering people that we want to empower by giving them the wrong incentives. In Paraguay, there is a conditional cash transfer, but there are hidden traps. It's called an intergenerational anti-poverty program. And when I asked, what do you mean by intergenerational? They said, well, really the poor are damaged merchandise. Let's, let's try to give them some cash and maybe their children uh, will be able to overcome poverty if we give them an incentive to go to school and to, to the health uh, post. What we're finding here in Paraguay is that many older women are now getting pregnant so that they will always have a child under 18 in their house, which will guarantee this, this cash coming into the house. What we are saying is that in addition to the cash transfer, you, what you should do is empower the family to learn and to be able to generate income above the poverty line. Don't dismiss people and say, no, you're, you're not middle-class material. You're, quote-unquote, damaged merchandise. So we'll just give you cash. So for the same effort, if you can give them cash, that means that you can reach them. That means that you can train them and you can motivate them and you can empower them to generate income. Why not? try to have people graduate from poverty. So we, are, we work with a lot of people who receive conditional cash transfers, and we have not seen the conditional cash transfers being the instrument for them to overcome poverty. It is to provide them some relief while they're living in poverty. But what we need to do is have a conditional cash transfers plus so that people graduate from poverty, and they actually do not need this type of subsidy. The support may imply a bigger subsidy at the beginning, but I think that in general, there are no damaged merchandise. And so you've been working on this program for, I think, more than a decade now in, in Paraguay. And in terms of seeing how people progress out of poverty, do you see that after people have been part of the program, they have been able to sustain their improved livelihoods or their improved well-being years after they've completed the program? Yes. In general, yes. In general, yes. For example, if you did not used to have a toilet and then you go on to have a toilet, the toilet doesn't go away. If you didn't have teeth and you now have a good set of teeth, that doesn't go away. If you all lived and slept in the same bedroom, but now you have an extra bedroom, that doesn't go away. In some cases, um, there is a going back. For example, a family can learn to generate income, and then they can have a catastrophic illness, and they can go back. In some cases, you revert into a situation of alcohol abuse or physical abuse, and you can go back. It depends on the family, and it depends on the indicator. But in general, what we have is that people with a stoplight are three times more likely to overcome poverty with a stoplight than those without. So we, right now, we're trying to work with as many researchers as we can. We have quantitative and qualitative evaluations of our program because 
we are looking for the truth. We're not trying to defend the stoplight. We're looking to see what works and what is it that allows people to flourish. And what are the obstacles, personal, social, cultural, that, that keep people in poverty? And of course, it changes from country to country and from family to family. But in general, it is better and possible today to complement, uh, and, I, and I mean this because it, I'm not by any means trying to do away with government social programs, but these are better when you have an informed customer, an informed client, an informed beneficiary or recipient that is in charge of his or her information. And if it is true that information is power, then the poor have to have the information. And what we have in many countries are extractive surveys where the caseworker or the social worker interviews the poor person and takes away the information for programmatic or policy uh, decisions, but the family itself is not given uh, the information so that they can reflect on that. You just spoke about shocks and how that might put people back. And of course, we're in a, in a time of great crisis with COVID-19. And I understand that Paraguay has actually acted quite quickly and has been able to contain the virus. But still, I imagine with lockdown measures, etc., people have been affected. So how are people that are usually in the program affected? And how does the program deal with this? Well, it has been a complete tragedy. Paraguay was fortunate to be able to identify the threat very early on, and we were one of the first South American countries to close our borders. We had a 24% poverty income poverty rate in December of 2019, and I imagine that we're now in 50-60% of poverty. It's been a disaster. So we are in the middle of a crisis. The Paraguay Foundation and the Poverty Stoplight Program has been actually creating soup kitchens, and uh, we have been able to use the stoplight to identify families who were most at risk. The poverty stoplight has been an invaluable instrument for us to reach these very vulnerable families with food kits. It's been, it's been a very serious problem that, that we are, we're just looking forward. Uh, hopefully, we will be able to overcome this. And the government had a very difficult time in reaching the poorest of the poor because they didn't know where they were. So we collaborated with the government in showing them how this stoplight can help them provide emergency and humanitarian support to all these uh, families that are literally starving, particularly those who are living in urban slums. The people who live in the rural villages usually have a capacity, usually have a capacity to grow their own food or raise their own animals. But people living in, in urban slums, that is a problem. And do you think this might kickstart some new government initiative towards greater social protection or indeed taking on the poverty stoplight in a way to um, identify people in poverty in future and help them more quickly? Or do you think government capacity is so eroded at the moment that that's a no-go? No, uh, the government is uh, promoting a social protection system. And I presented in December uh, an anti-poverty legislation. It's a law to eliminate poverty in Paraguay. It's a law to apply the stoplight to every single family in the country, of course, on a volunteer basis. 
and to allow every family to self-diagnose and provide government with the information regarding their housing needs, their health needs, their education needs, and their income and training and needs. So we are, are now at the committee level in both the Senate and the Chamber of Representatives in Paraguay. I am having many conversations with the vice president, with the minister of finance, the minister of uh, social protection, the minister of social development. Hopefully, we will be able to provide the information on the demand that the social protection systems have on the supply of government services. Fascinating, Martin, to hear about your work, where this is going. Do you have any final words about the program or about things that you think the listeners should know about in terms of poverty or how it should be resolved and some alternative ways of thinking about this? Yes, uh, I believe that poverty can be eliminated. I believe that families, uh, family households, workers, people can become empowered enough to be able to tackle their gravest challenges with compassionate support from the government and from civil society and from businesses. I'm very encouraged. We now have 100,000 families in 29 countries doing the stoplight. We hope to reach 1 million in the next three years and then taking advantage of technology, really scaling to the whole world. I will look forward to see how that all evolves. It's absolutely clear that at this time, with unfortunately many more people around the world falling into poverty, there's great need for more innovative solutions. And and your enthusiasm around the technology is is hardening in the sense that we can scale up and we can use poverty stoplights or other methods for more people and quicker than ever before. So Martin, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, People are interested. They can go to povertystoplight.org and uh, in our website and they can contact us and let's continue this conversation. That's brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you and good luck. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please visit our website poverty-unpacked.org for more episodes and blog posts. Please also follow us on Twitter at Poverty Unpacked. We hope you will join us again next time.